0: Let's get Rational Radio off today on an environmental, societal and Mm. governance uh, beginning (laughs) and the whole ESG story. I know the two of us have been uh, sharing emails and things about various changes, big changes in the world, Um, but ESG is one of them.
1: It is. Alec, and uh, I think over the next decade or so, you're going to find it's more of an issue when it comes to investing and more and more companies are going to have to adhere to standards or certain standards uh, if they are going to attract investment. So in simple form, you know, it's so difficult to actually um, define what ESG means and what it means for companies, but I think it's a shift away from shareholder value. You know, whereas companies would have only concentrated in the past in creating value for shareholders, I think now the demand – are far greater, as you said, societal. Uh, in other words, you have, to, you have to run a clean company and you also have to be aware of not only the environment but the people that you serve, the society that you serve as well. So I think that if companies do not adhere to these standards, uh, they're going to find it very, very difficult uh, to attract capital and also they're going to come under... Uh, scrutiny from, you know, not not only the community but uh, from government as well. So that's what we're in for, and it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's 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 a move in the right direction.
0: The business of business is no longer just business. No,
1: no, no. You know, just making money is not what it's worth. Uh, of course, you have to, uh, you sort of have to be aware of providing the people who, you know, the providers of capital, a decent return. But um, there got to be other considerations that you take into account when you, when you run a business.
0: Uh, Hendrik uh, de Choy from Investec is quite big on this, Dave. And it's quite oh. interesting to see him in the news this week with the, the old Investec Asset Management, which he started on his own in 1991, mm-hmm. changing its name. Which is interesting in itself, um, but that it's it's now he's now pulling it out of investic. He never had any shares to start with. He says, well, maybe he should have asked for equity off the bat. But has the best time not perhaps gone for asset management companies?
1: I think so. I think the 90s were the best uh, when there was transformation here. Also, um, you weren't competing with um, what we see today is is high-frequency trading. Uh, it's it's index-hugging. Um, it's much more difficult now, number one, to attract investments and also to kind of beat the market. I'm not saying you can't beat the market, but it's not as easy as, as it used to be. Um, I think more flexible, smaller funds are much easier than uh, maybe larger funds. And I think uh, from Hendrix's point of view, you can see if they attract assets, but performance is not uh, a massive outperformance of what you can get by merely buying an index. Um, Alec, if you look at coronation, you can see the, the issues that coronation are going through. And those
0: results that, last week, Dave, we're, mm, were pretty ordinary.
1: Very ordinary. And, and the reason is that uh, they are so big and with a big leaning towards the South African market that it's very hard for them to find places where they can outperform uh, the rest of the market. So, and people are particular, you know, they give you a quarter and if you're not performing in the a quarter, they decide to switch somewhere else. So it's, it's not as easy as it used to be in those, in those years and information flows, not a, you know, the markets that I was brought up in the 1970s where we used to cut out the newspaper and, 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 uh, uh establish files on each company. And that's, that, that was our reference point today. At the click of the button, you have so much information at your disposal. Um, And private client who never had it before also has it Um, through the Internet, through even programs like this. And I've always said it to you. You know, you were one of the first to actually bring um, business radio to the public. That was in the mid-90s or early 90s. You know, before that, there wasn't any information like that. So you struggle. So all of that is, is, is mounting up to make it a lot more competitive.
0: But getting back to ESG, uh, last mm. week we were talking about Cecil. Have you had a chance mm. to have a look at Cecil with maybe a, a fresh pair of eyes? Because their problems, <laughs> their, their issues have to be around – we're going to talk about this later in the program as well – but have to be around the carbon emissions. And how? And they
1: came out with a trading statement today, which, funny enough, the market has just brushed aside. Uh, results are going to be down for the second quarter of the year, for the half year, down about more than twenty percent. But I think, to a large extent, this had been discounted because of the issues. But there's absolutely no doubt that. Um, they will come under pressure because of carbon emissions you know at their at their minds here and at their operations and they're aware of it i know they're aware of it and they need to address it where they've been lucky or where they've been fortunate is that, is that there hasn't been much of an outcry against um, you know against Sassel. Um, I think the, the response has been pretty muted. Been, there's been uh, talk of, um, of their carbon emissions, and, I mean, these are really bad, but there's been no real reaction. So they haven't felt the pressure yet. But it's, but coming. They know, it's coming. It's coming, Dave. Come. They've got an AGM no, no. on Wednesday,
0: and uh, no we're going to be about. talking to people who are going to the AGM and going to be giving Cecil mm. a bit of a rev.
1: No, you know uh, absolutely and i think it's going to apply to any mining company today where you disturb the environment you know the frackers have come under immense pressure uh, globally for for what they've doing you know whether it's polluting the land or whether they're polluting the water by um, you know the way that fracking and the way that they rupture underneath the, you know they rupture the uh, geology which can lead to all poisonous uh, you know, the escape of poisonous gases, etc. So I think um, it's not going to be an easy time. Yeah, we, we've, we've seen it with companies like Glencore in another way, where they've gone into areas where other people fear to tread. And they management there have come out of, you know, come under pressure because of the way that they've behaved, so that 's another element of this ESg you've got you 've got, got to be yeah.
0: seen to be doing good, but David would you then stay far away from Sassel shares and indeed other shares that are exposed to environmental risks
1: in, It will happen you know at the moment uh, i 'm not in Sassel. So I can't really comment on it. But uh, there's no doubt that we will start to move away from companies that are not you know, behaving uh, properly and where it's obvious. I think Sassel's factories have been around for a long time. Um, but I think there's going to be pressure on them and they know what they have to do. But I think it's going to be a, it's, it's, it's going to be a big subject in the, you know, in the future.
0: David, I, I was just going to ask you quickly about um, what happened on Friday with the results from NUSPAS and PROCESS. Uh, because they're so important on the JSE and in retirement funds, uh, one needs to pay attention to them? Um,
1: they've been okay. I think uh, there was nothing dramatic there um, that, that would have changed the course of uh, both of those shares. It's new. We've now got to start digesting them as, as, as new companies. But I think overall the market's been fairly satisfied with what they've seen. Um you need to go through them with a much greater, in, in much greater detail to come to some kind of conclusion. But share prices have been holding up, uh, pretty well. So no, um, no I, problem I, there you know on, on no, the big bid
0: that they're making for Just Eat in the UK as well?
1: I, I think it's expensive to be honest. But, you know, you've got to go with Bob van Dyck and you've got to believe that he knows what he's doing. It's not an area, you know. I I I love tech and I follow tech very, very closely. I'm not an Uber fan in the sense of buying it. I'm not a. I haven't bought Tesla, but I watch these characters and I watch what they're doing and how they're um, disrupting industries. But you like to go in when you're sure that they're going to start generating cash and that there's. uh, you know, that there's some future. And, and why I say that is that you could have hung around in, uh, Tencent for many years before you actually started to make, uh, to make the money. But, but, um, it, you know, the, I, I don't want to say the jury's out. We're watching carefully to see if Bob I can make a difference and whether, you know, the purchase of Just Eat does, you know, is, is, is going to uh, change the course of the company. I, I'm still a little sceptical. You know? I'm saying a delivery bike, um, <laughs> you know, buying into delivery bikes, I don't know.
0: David Shapiro is the Deputy Chairman of Sasswin and I'll give you the other side of the story. I have a look around here in Johannesburg and all I see are delivery bikes. So I speak to the owner of my favourite restaurant and she tells me that a high percentage now of her sales are being done Deliveries, home deliveries. And in fact, in the shopping center where she uh, operates from, there is a shop that is only, that is, that has been sold. It doesn't have a storefront, but this guy has got three chefs who are doing sushi and just deliver, just for the delivery market. There's been a fundamental shift in the environment, and Bob van Dijk has been one of those who's actually picked up on it. Well, a fundamental shift in Indeed, is also a possibility as far as South Africa's interest rates are concerned. And on Friday, we had S&P downgrading the outlook for South Africa from neutral to negative. Now, we're already minus two or two notches down into junk uh, from S&P, one of the big three ratings agencies. And I asked Azar Jameen uh, a little earlier today to give us some insights into what it means, is it really important or should we be focusing all our attention on what's going on with Moody's? A warm welcome to Dr. Azar Jameen, Chief Economist at Econometrics. Azar, I know you've been on holiday but you always follow these things closely. On Friday, the S&P report came out on South Africa's rating. It's been, well, viewed in in quite a negative light by most people in the country. What's your thoughts on, on what you read?
2: There's no doubt that uh, it does reflect the powerless fiscal situation that South Africa's government finds itself in. Having said that, I think uh, the announcement of the downward revision of the outlook on the credit rating by S&P following on from a similar corresponding downgrade uh, three weeks ago by Moody's came as no real surprise. I think uh, there's been general recognition uh, regarding the difficult uh, fiscal situation that we find ourselves in. And the uh, real shock was the upward revision of budget deficits and the trajectory of the public debt-to-GDP ratios incorporated into the medium-term budget policy statement at the end of October.
0: Now, uh, just to stop there a little bit, that really caught everybody by surprise, or so it seemed, that Tito was A, so outspoken, and B, that the numbers looked so bad.
2: Yes, indeed. Uh, conspiracy theorists will say, well, uh, you know, the Treasury has been very open about uh, the... Uh, extent to which the fiscal situation has deteriorated. Some of the graphs that were incorporated into the document that accompanied the MTBPS were quite shocking. And you ask yourself, well, why did they actually paint such a negative picture? Is it that they want to put pressure on government uh, and they they may you know somewhere might even say that they probably colluded uh, indirectly with uh, the ratings agencies to ensure that they created an environment in which government felt under pressure to uh, actually respond to uh, the introduction of uh, measures incorporated into the strategy document that Treasury had uh, uh, tabled uh, a couple of months earlier to try and rectify things.
0: The thing that's that's worrying me, and I guess most South Africans, is we can see that there's problems. We know that we're moving in the wrong direction. Why has nothing been done about it, i.e. higher taxes or uh, reduction in spending by the state?
2: Well, uh, higher taxes. Tito Mboweni uh, mentioned in his medium-term budget policy statement that uh, uh, he's re- reluctant to raise taxes too much because the Treasury have found that we seem to have gone beyond the threshold uh, be, uh, at which uh, uh, more, uh, higher taxes actually bring more revenue, bring in more revenue, and in fact, uh, higher tax rates could actually reduce revenue the so-called Laffer effect, yeah. Uh, yeah, on the expenditure side, there are two facets here. The first is state-owned enterprises, and uh, we can see the tremendous problems that SAA are facing right now, and we know that ESCOM have been under tremendous uh, pressure as well, and that involves government uh, saving the day if it wants to keep these as, as publicly owned Companies saving the day by using taxpayers' money to bail them out, and that increases government spending, deficits, and the debt. And the second aspect that has been uh, seemingly intractable is people were hoping that the MTBPS would show some restraint on government uh, public sector remuneration, and yet if you analyze the figures, the ratio of compensation of employees to total government spending uh, is set to remain unchanged over the next three years. There's very little sign of them cutting back on that. And part of it is due to the fact that they're tied into a public sector wage agreement with public sector unions. Uh, But even beyond that, uh, there seems to be a reluctance to uh, contemplate anything below an inflation plus type of increase for public servants. Looks like and we're, heading,
0: we... we're heading for quite a, a bash there, but certainly if one recalls in the budget, Tito did bring out his idea or his innovative thought that he'd, he'd uh, make it more appealing for public servants to go on pension. That doesn't seem to have worked. He, he said, I was in the, in the uh, uh, press conference in the lockup, uh, for the what do you call it MTBPS? MTBPS. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and he was saying there that they're going to try again, and this time they're going to market it better to the public servants. But if that doesn't work, and they can't raise taxes, what happens next?
2: Well, the on the state and enterprise side, um, clearly there is one other option, and that is to sell off strategic stakes in these organisations and get new management. Uh, that is accountable to new private sector shareholders and therefore is obliged to act in a more profitable and competent manner than is the case when you've got government as a shareholder who uh, with the interpretation that government has endless resources to bail things out as far as public sector remuneration is concerned unfortunately uh, the government will uh, be headed for a confrontation between government and the trade unions and the irony of this is that the trade unions in the public sector were at the heart of the support for civil Ramaphosa to become president as opposed to Nkosazana Dlamini Zuma in the presidential uh, election of the, the, the ANC held at the end of 2017.
0: So that was pretty fluid in all of this. Do you read anything from what happened in the last week with South African Airways?
2: Uh, yeah, well, what I read here is that government tried to. Uh, give the impression of actually negotiating with the unions and actually giving them uh, a bit of leeway and uh, almost giving some benefit to the unions. But if you think a little more deeply, um, you know, if SAA goes bankrupt, uh, then uh, the agreement with the unions is meaningless to begin with, uh, but, you know, at least it gave the unions a feeling that they won this negotiation. But actually, if it ends in SAA closing down, which they, and there's a very strong possibility of that, then uh, clearly, you know, it, it closes down and uh, people will lose jobs.
0: As I was just getting back to the ratings agencies, we know that there's only one of the three big rating agencies that have given South African uh, an investment grade, that's Moody's. Their outlook is negative, which would suggest that when they do their next rating, they're going to cut us to junk as well. Is that your reading of it?
2: Uh, yes, that is my reading of it, but there is, I want to warn against complacency regarding the S&P downward revision, because with S&P likewise, one can say uh, now that we're on a negative outlook, that unless government pulls a rabbit out of the hat uh, in the February budget, that S&P likewise will uh, uh, cut our credit rating further into junk status, there is There's a view that since Moody's is the one that's investment grade now and would go into junk, that is a much more serious downgrade, but one shouldn't overplay that. The danger with going deeper and deeper into junk status, which uh, seems to be the case now potentially with S&P, is that there is a correlation uh, uh, between long-term interest rates and uh, level of junk status such that long-term interest rates tend to accelerate in an upward direction the deeper into junk status one goes. So from a longer-term point of view, uh, if S&P downgrades us deeper into junk, uh, government is going to have a harder time uh, or will be obliged to offer higher and higher uh, interest rates on its bonds to keep attracting buyers. And uh, already we know that Debt servicing costs uh, are set to rise by 2.5% of government spending uh, over the next three years, crowding out. In other words, there will be 2.5% less to spend on everything else because uh, uh, because of that 2.5% increase on interest payments. So a further uh, sharp increase in uh, long-term interest rates, uh, obliging government to sell government bonds at those exorbitant levels is going to exacerbate this crunch.
0: So pull a rabbit out of the hat quickly please
2: (laughs) Is that the question? Is that what we should all be praying for? Well, that's what we pray for but uh, you know logic says that the political machinations within the ANC won't allow that to actually transpire but uh, you know you just never know and uh, funnily enough, markets could react very favorably uh, to if, uh, uni- even if unions uh, jump up and down and start uh, protesting, etc. But uh, the markets might see this as a crunch point beyond, you know, much as, ha- as happened in uh, the 70s in the UK, which was a turning point in the fortunes of the UK economy.
0: Azhar Jamin is the chief economist of Econometrics. That was Azar Jameen, the Chief Economist of Econometrics. And, well, he's he's telling us, he's warning us to take a very close watch of what's going on on all the ratings agencies, not just Moody's. Well, we're taking a close watch, uh, South Africa is anyway, uh, on a story that is developing between the Sunday Times and SABC. The SABC board has asked for the state security agency to come in and help it to work out why board packs are being leaked to the media. And that is something that the Sunday Times released over the weekend in the public interest, telling the country that the national broadcaster seems to have an unhealthy relationship with the state security agency. I got hold of the chairman of the SABC, Bongo Musso Makatini, earlier today, and here is our conversation. Well, it's a warm welcome to Bongo Musso Makatini, who is the chair of the SABC board, which has uh, got itself into an interesting debate at the moment with the Sunday Times newspaper. Mr. Makatini, you obviously got a little surprised, no doubt, when you saw the headlines in the Sunday Times yesterday.
3: It was a shocking headline indeed, and very, very baseless and false, and uh, it really got us worried if people can go to that level of recklessness in tarnishing our reputation and the credibility of the public and, and, and broadcaster.
0: Just for clarity, though, the story itself, did you have any problems with uh, the, the context or the facts therein?
3: I had a lot of fundamental problems with one. Um, the, the, the headline, that as a board, we've had a meeting and made a decision to spy on our staff is false. That's, that's the first uh, fundamental problem. But also the impact of such a story, because, you know, in broadcasting, your credibility is everything. If people can't trust you, if your journalists feel threatened and feel they can't do their work because somebody is spying on them, it just compromises the relationship uh, between us, the relationship of trust between us as the board and the employees. But generally, the other uh, fundamental issue is that it affects our bottom line because, you know, South Africans, if they see that there's some level of chaos or instability at the SAPC, they don't pay their TV licenses. But also competitors, they take advantage of these things and then our advertisers then flock to other uh, players because we are a business in the first place.
0: All right, I I get that. But uh, the headline, and I, I can understand why you're upset about that, but the article itself, was there anything in there factually which you disputing
3: yes we're, we're disputing that we've made a decision to uh, to spy on people but what i'm what i'm agreeing with okay what is correct is that as a board we discussed the issue of um, uh, uh, leaking of our information or distribution of confidential information to dead parties and we've uh, we've resolved that we will seek assistance from the state security in terms of advising us on different methods that we can use to protect our information. That's one. But also, we've made it very clear, and and, and it's not put correctly, that journalists are excluded from this. I mean, this legal opinion was solicited in 2018, which specifically said we cannot involve journalists in any president to do with the SSA. So we've taken enough precautionary measures to make sure that journalists are protected and the constitution of this country is also adhered to and respected.
0: Mr. Macatini, the, the fact that you are calling in the state security agency, haven't they got better things to do with their time than to track down board papers that might have been leaked?
3: I think the importance of the role of the state security, we are a national key point. So you will understand the mandate of the state security and what they have to do when one of the entities of government needs help. It's the same way we work with the SAU, the same way we work with, for example, Auditor General. So uh, uh, from that perspective, we, we, we can then approach state security for help. But also... We could have gone to any private security company. But, you know, if we work with state security, it's within, um, the, you know, the, the platform and it's within government entities. And and, and and I want to assure the public that there is no way with this current board that we have and the executive that will do anything that is outside the law or that is illegal.
0: But the context of all of this, the state security agency was operating within the SABC recently, not under your tenure, not since... Uh Uh, in December 2017 and the changes in the country, but it was – they were there. Surely going back to them and and engaging with them is a risk anyway from a a board perspective. Why not just talk to a private company? Uh, Because I I hear that this is a big problem for you, that the board packs are are being um, leaked. But surely to bring bring the state security agency in to look after – Something of this of this nature uh, seems a bit like squashing a flea with a sledgehammer.
3: I, I do I do I do think we we as, as South Africans also we need to be fair and, and honest that it, it doesn't mean that everybody at the state security is is is, is a rogue element. It doesn't mean that um, you know because there's certain people who did wrong things because they were also willing to party on the side of the SAPC. Everything that has gone wrong, it was not. Driven by one side. There was a willing participant on the other side. Now, I'm saying we are a board that is very clear what is our mandate. We are a board that respects the law and the constitution of this country. So, whatever that anybody come that have gets invited to assist the SAPC, we're not going to allow them to do as they are pleased. We're going to guide what they need to do. And if we're not happy with what they're offering us and we feel whatever they are offering is in contrary, uh, with the, the, the prescript of the law, certainly will take the necessary step. But to say because the state security was compromised, certain things were done wrong, now we're no longer going to work with it. Then we, what are we going to say by, with the, the rest of... Because at some point some of these entities were compromised. And there is a lot of work that has gone in to turn around your NPA, to turn around your SIU, to turn around, uh, you know, the auditation and so forth. So we've got to accept that there are people and there are South Africans who are willing to do what is right.
0: Okay. When you look at this uh, on reflection, because we now have got something that seems to have exploded beyond... Um, where you would have wanted it to have done. In that board meeting, was there not another way to have dealt with this, to perhaps found a different way of of plugging the leaks of board packs?
3: You know what I I think I need to clarify here is that we are in an an exploration phase. I mean, we haven't even had the meeting with the SAU, all right? We've just written a letter to them requesting to meet with them, to present to them our challenge and see how they can help. Um, we, we, we're not limited to the um, state security, so to speak. We could go to another expert. In fact, we're already implementing a solution around board text, which would, for example, prevent anyone from forwarding any of the board text. Uh, that would prevent anyone from printing the board text anywhere else other than within the SAG. So there is a number of other things that we are already um, exploring. So it's not that like we've gone into some form of an arrangement. We just, Talking to different experts, we decided to start with the SIU because SIU is uh, one of the entities that can sit with such things. And, 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 and really, we, we shouldn't confuse the, 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 the excitement and the mistake made by Sunday Times and, and, and start to doubt everything that we've done. We uh, support, we've taken the resolution that we're going to seek help um, you know, with the hope of blocking all of those loopholes that exist. But, of course, we can talk to any other person who can assist us. Of course, understanding the cost implication and the mandate of these entities and the SAPC.
0: Hmm. So, is there not maybe a better way of doing and picking up the phone to the editor of the Sunday Times and having a chat with them to, to try and square this off?
3: In fact, before we got to where we are, I'm sure we, we, a lot was done to try and, and clarify this thing. All right? But, but also, you, you've got to accept that No, as 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 we are a business, I mean, for the for Sunday Times to sit with um, the minutes of a board of the SAPC, you know, because they are our competitors. And also to use those minutes to push an agenda that is baseless, that cannot be ignored. And, 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 and now we're just focusing on the state security and, and the credibility of the state security and ignore something that has gone fundamentally wrong with Sunday Times yeah. uh,
0: When you say the, the allegations are baseless um, or the agenda is baseless, what is the agenda? Is com- I,
3: I'm not sure what's the agenda, but what I know is that as the SABC, we're turning around that entity and our competitors may not be happy with the turnaround because some of them have been so successful because SAPC was sleeping on the job, that's one. But secondly, every time when there is a perception being created that there is chaos at the SAPC, of course the the advertisers will then flock to them. Uh, But also, if there is a view that our journalists are not free to do what they need to do, of course the credibility of our news gets compromised. It's all about people believing in the credibility of what we do. So if they are in the same business as, as us, I'm sure it is served their interest if we are not seen in a positive light. All right. And but... this is why we saw, disturbed by this um, headline that was pushed by the by, by Sunday Times, because they are our competitors in the space.
0: I, I, I get that, but what if, their only agenda is in the public interest, is saying that there's a public broadcaster and it looks like the board wants to bring in the state security agency who have abused their position with a public broadcaster in the past. If that's the agenda, then perhaps it it might be more fruitful to sit down and have a cup of tea.
3: If that was the agenda, they were not going to have the headline that the board has taken a decision to, to spy on their staff because that does not reflect anywhere in the documents that, and even the discussion that we had, okay? That's the first thing. So you can't say you push in public interest uh, by pegging lies. That's the first problem. The, 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 the second problem is, I mean, what, what is the story here? What, what's the big whoa? Because sometimes, you know, when, when people communicate and, and get excited about, um, you know, pushing certain stories, you also need to ask yourself, What exactly are you trying to achieve? What have they achieved? They've created fear amongst our employees. We now have this crisis that we have to manage, which actually was because of them misrepresenting facts.
0: Not because the board wants to bring in the state security agency.
3: There is no law in this country that bans anybody from working with the organs of state. Okay, I've explained to you that there must be a willingness on our part to do the wrong things for whoever to come to the SAPC and do the wrong things. I mean, if you look at our track record as this new board, there is nothing that we've done that shows that we are not committed to the constitution of this country and to doing what is right. Look at our performance during the elections this year. It was rated one of the best elections in terms of coverage from the ACBC. Look at the caliber of executives that we've brought in. Look at the effort that have gone in in cleaning up the mess, the legacy issues. So there is nothing that we've done, there's never been any complaint from our journalists that shows that as a board we are interfering. So it's outside of every other thing that we've done so far. So it's 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 something that is not informed by any example or by any reality.
0: Mr. Makatini, uh, thank you very much for your contribution today. The chair of the SABC board, Bongamusa Makatini. Well, our uh, fireballs back with us, Paul O'Sullivan. Nice to have you on the program, Paul. We ran a very strong story last week uh, relating to the whole Trinidad issue with APSA facilitating money laundering, certainly in your opinion. Do you want to just recap it for us or put it in a nutshell for those who haven't been following the story?
4: Yeah, okay, Alec, I think, um, thanks uh, for that. What we're saying is, and we wrote to AbsaBank some time ago, in fact, we had a meeting with the the new uh, CEO of AbsaBank, and I kind of was hoping that with a new CEO, we would have new ideas. And it would appear that AbsaBank may not be on their own in this, by the way, um, but it appears that the banks like hiding behind this confidentiality story and saying that you know they'll hide behind that because um, their clients are entitled to confidentiality. I don't believe they're entitled to confidentiality if they're clearly breaking the law. The point we made to ABSA was they knew all reasonable times because I have to do a Financial Intelligence Centre uh, Act on each and every single customer that they have. Now all of us at Bank know that once a year or twice once every two years or something like that, your bank gets hold of you and they want proof of your address. They want w- proof of where you work, um, a copy of your ID certified and blah, blah, blah. And the banks are relentless on going through that. Now, then if you have any large payment of cash into your account, you, you know, you get an email from them asking you, well, what's this amount that's just arrived? Can you tell us what is the source of funds you see now? I'm saying that if Absa Bank were doing their FIC processes on their on their their uh, customers, they would have seen that he ever had this gentleman by the name of Fakudi, who worked at Eskom in a fairly senior position, earning good money, and on the side he had a little CC which he called um, Fakudi Interpretation and Translation CC. Now. We've seen the bank statements for that CC for a long period of time. And there were no activity through the accounts at all, none whatsoever. And then suddenly, over a period of 29 months, there were 60 million went through the accounts, which is an average of 2 million a month. Of course, in some months, it was substantially more. In other months, it was substantially less. And of this 60 million that went through the accounts, an amount of 37 minus million was actually withdrawn in cash.
0: From the tellers? Yeah. The guy went in yeah, the bank yeah, with a suitcase yeah. and said, give me 200 yes. rand notes.
4: Yes. Hmm. Well, we don't know if he had 200 rand or 100 rand notes or whatever, <laughs> yeah. but I did an exercise. On one day alone, he took out an amount of 5.4 million rand in cash. Now, for a bank that knows that their client is a senior employer, Eskom, to then turn around and say, you know, we've checked what we've done and everything we did was above board. Um, is absolutely ludicrous because it's impossible that they didn't have severe red flags and do something about it. Now, we do happen to know um, through the grapevine that they did in fact do an FIC report. And I'm saying
0: What's that, that me- What's the FIC report?
4: Well, the Financial Intelligence Center Act requires uh, certain categories to make reports. They have to file a report. <clears throat> and it Whenever a large amount of cash is paid into an account or withdrawn from an account, that would trigger your legal obligation to file those reports. Now, um, of course, if you've got somebody that's in the cash business, like pick and pay or checkers or something like that, and there's large amounts of cash coming over the tills every day, that would be a separate issue because that would be in the normal course of business. But here we had a guy that was being paid, in both sums of money, lots of round, you know, noughts on the end of the figures. Now, you know, we all know that if you issue a tax invoice um, for for something, um, by the time you've, you've done X number of these and Y number of those, and there's a subtotal and there's a VAT, it's very seldom that amount is going to come to exactly a million Rand or two million Rand or four million Rand. And that's what was going on through that account. All these large... Um, red flags coming up. Absa Banker of the opinion that they met their legal obligations by reporting it to FIC, and we're saying rubbish. They didn't meet their obligations at all because they must have known, they ought reasonably to have known, that what was going on through those accounts was money laundering.
0: But it seems obvious, Paul, just from the outside. There's a teller, or must be a teller, who's in on it, because you can't have someone coming in continuously to the same bank, to the same branch, just after the money's been deposited, withdrawing it all in cash. Is yeah, well, if, you, disputing if, you, that?
4: if you take these carry-on bags that, you know, the, the, the maximum required or maximum allowed size of a carry-on bag...
0: On an aeroport.
4: Uh Yes, which is, I think, 50 centimetres by 20 by 30 or something like that. Mm. So, you know, most people have them. I do, because I never check baggage. So that's... If you take one of those bags, your, your typical approved carry-on bag, now uh, it would, uh, if you use 200 Rand notes, we came to the conclusion it would be actually two suitcases of money to amount to 5.4 million Rand. And I'm just left wondering why any bank in the world would allow somebody to walk out of the brunt with 5.4 million rand in cash, and then be back a few days later for another few million.
0: Especially so, if the guy works for Eskom, and there was even even in those days there was a lot of smut around it. But what have Absa done? Have they identified a teller? Have they reported?
4: Now, uh, absolutely. <laughs> you know what the banks do? I mean, we get transactions where there's theft going on. Um, we call it cybercrime where people use, they call these these things spoof email addresses. So you're in the process of buying a property and you've got a, an attorney that's doing the transfer and the attorney will send you a letter saying that you have to pay the balance of the purchase price and they give you their trust account details and off you go and you pay that money into their trust account and three weeks later you get another email from the, the attorney asking you why you haven't paid. Mm. And that's because somebody hacked either your email account or the attorney's email account. They created a spoof email address, and they've sent you the wrong details. So you notify the bank about that transaction, and there's a massive cover-up instantly. The bank will not give you any information at all. They say, no, you must get the docket open. You must speak to the police and blah, blah, blah. And because of the paralysis in the criminal justice system – By the time the police get around to asking for information from the bank, all the money's gone. And we're saying when the banks have been notified about these transactions, they should freeze accounts immediately. But what they do is they hide behind this confidentiality and they allow the theft to take place. Now, in the UK, you have to match a payment. When you make an electronic payment, you have to give a client account name. And when you put the account name in and then you put the account number and the sort code in and the amount, if the account name doesn't match the account number that you've given, you can't make the payment. The system stops it. The banks in this country are too lazy to introduce that because there's a cost involved and therefore they allow millions and millions, in fact, probably billions a year to be stolen and they wind up in many cases having to pay back the money to the clients. And that comes off their bottom line. And even after all of that and all the monies that come off their bottom line, Absa was able to bank 16.1 billion Rand in headline earnings for the last financial year. And we're saying if you can bank that sort of profit, you can spend a little bit more of it on making sure that your customers aren't money laundering through their accounts.
0: Paul, just to close off with uh, the big news of the past week, and I know you've been telling us it was going to happen, but Bongani Bongo, a former member of the Cabinet, in fact, head of state security, uh, arrested. So it does appear as though, finally, we're starting to see some serious arrests.
4: (laughs) Watch this space, because I happen to know on the inside track that there's more arrests coming, and they'll be very, very soon.
0: High profile? Yep. And, and how, how high profile is this uh, Bongani-Bongo? Surely to be a cabinet men, member with that portfolio, you can't what, get What you've got to
4: remember, if you look at the, 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 the project, the state capture project, you had different mm, parts of the, the syndicate in there and some of the parts of the syndicate were there to protect Jacob Zuma and others were there just to protect common criminals. Now, it's a fact that apart from hijacking all the state-owned Uh, companies, a lot of them, um, not all of them, but uh, quite a few of them, the ones where they were able to steal money. Um, They also hijacked the law enforcement agencies, which included SARS, the police, the National Prosecuting Authority, and the intelligence agencies. Now, if you've got an honorable minister of intelligence, it's impossible for the hijacking of the intelligence agencies to take place. But we've never had uh, under Sumer, an honorable minister of intelligence. In fact, we had this other guy. Uh, I used to refer to him as the minister of happy endings. And during his term of office, his picture that he posted on his WhatsApp uh, profile was a picture of the um, Russian standard. So you can work out for yourself what these people were all up to, hobnobbing with rhino traffickers that run massage parlors in Nail Sprite. Um Prior to him, we had a lady, or a gentleman, shall I say, whose wife was involved in drug trafficking. Um, so, you know, what we're now starting to see is a process where the cleanup is underway. Um, it's starting to pick up a bit of speed. Um, yeah. I think probably by this time next year, there'll be a lot more heads rolling.
0: Paul O'Sullivan, who has never lost faith in the fact that South Africa was going to put itself out of the quagmire. And, well, we're finally starting to see that. In just a moment, we're going to talk about shareholder activism. You heard earlier in the program that David Shapiro was saying we haven't really seen enough pressure being put onto uh, organizations like SASL um, because of things like greenhouse gases, but that's about to change. And it's a warm welcome to Tracy Davies, who's director of Just Share. Tracy, just tell us a little bit about Just Share and, and what got you into it.
5: Sure. Hi, Alec. Um, JustShare is a non-profit responsible investment and shareholder activism organization. We were established in 2017. Um really because there was a, a kind of growing realization within the civil society, social justice sector that while there's a lot of focus on government, there was not so much focus on the corporate sector and its role uh, in impacting social justice and environmental justice in South Africa. Mm. So we've been focusing a lot over the past 18 months on climate risk in the financial sector, which is what you're talking about with regards to Cecil. Uh So focusing a lot on SASL and its greenhouse gas emissions and disclosure and also on the banks that finance fossil fuels.
0: Uh, SASL's got an annual general meeting on Wednesday. This is the one time of the year that shareholders are allowed to talk or to grill the directors of the company, and you intend doing that. First of all, I I presume you own shares in SASL to be able to to get into the AGM.
5: Yes, so we, um, Jashair, will own just – a. You know, one or two shares. You don't, you only have to have one to be able to go to the AGM. Um, and that's a fairly well established uh, strategy around the world for shareholder activism by, um, by people like myself. Um, so we go there because we, in our experience in South Africa, big institutional investors don't tend to be very vocal at AGMs and ask um, important questions. And we think that it's important that the board gets to, um, you know, that the board has to answer these difficult questions in public. Um, and, uh, you know, they need to be accountable for these issues.
0: The fact that there's been a change in the chief executives, there, the joint CEOs leaving a new CEO coming in, do you think that's going to make it a little easier for you to have your message heard?
5: I honestly have no idea. Um, we've been working uh, on Sassel's disclosure for a couple of years. Uh, And as you may know, they've recently released a climate change report, which does go further than their previous disclosures as far as climate risk to their business and their shareholders is concerned. Um, It still doesn't go nearly far enough. uh, And I think you'll find that it's not just uh, activists who think that. I think institutional investors, a lot of them believe that, too. That was all done under the auspices of the previous uh, CEO, the joint CEOs. Um, we've had nothing, no indication yet of what the approach will be of the new CEO or, for that matter, the new chairman uh, of SASL to this issue. But we're really hoping that they uh, are coming into this job with a full realization of, of what a crucial issue this is for the company.
0: So you'll be there on Wednesday, 10 o'clock, the AGM starts at the campus. What are you going to ask?
5: That's correct. Um, well, you know, first of all, it won't just be us who's there. Uh, there'll be a, a large number of, of civil society activists, and we're hoping as a result of recent developments that there will also be some uh, some institutional investors asking difficult questions. Um, and our questions will really be focused predominantly on SASL's plans to reduce emissions, particularly from Secunda, uh, it set a 10% emission reduction target by 2030, uh, but that's just unfortunately not good enough. We perfectly understand the constraints that the company faces and the crucial role that it plays in the South African economy. But the bottom line is that if, if we as a society and as a corporate sect don't take proactive steps to address climate risk, then there are going to be some really serious consequences imposed on us uh, by the rest of the world, and that's not going to be good for the economy either.
0: So they haven't gone far enough, in your opinion?
5: No, not, not nearly so far, uh, not nearly far enough. Secunda emits more greenhouse gases every year than most small countries on Earth. It has a, a massive greenhouse gas footprint. And in circumstances where we have entire countries setting targets for net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, a 10 percent reduction in emissions from Secunda, which will knock about seven million tons of carbon dioxide off their profile a year, is just not going to come anywhere close to, to meet, meeting the Paris Agreement's goals.
0: It's not just Sassel it's in your sites. You're also going to be going to the First Rand AGM on Thursday. Now they seem to be a a pretty responsible organisation. What's your beef there?
5: Yeah, so um, so first round is we we, we have been working with uh, Stroke um, against all of the big banks that had initially signed up as potential funders of new privately owned coal-fired power stations, most notably Tabameti and Kanyisa. Um, what we discovered when we started engaging with the banks a few years ago was that they'd done no climate change or climate risk assessments of these projects um, and that they were unaware of the modelling that shows that South Africa doesn't need any new coal-fired power generation, Uh, also not taking into account the risks to their own businesses by virtue of financing potentially stranded assets. So what we want the banks to do is to have policies which describe publicly what they are planning on doing when it comes to financing fossil fuels. There's a resolution, a shareholder resolution tabled at First Rand um, by Just Share and the Wraith Foundation. If it passes, the bank will be required to publicly adopt a policy on fossil fuel financing and also provide a report to shareholders on its assessment of how big a risk climate change poses to its future business operations. So really, our um, our beef, as you call it, is really only around disclosure. We are not trying to dictate uh, what banks finance or how they finance it. What we want is them to show shareholders and the broader society that they're be cognizant of the risks and to explain to people how they're addressing those risks. And that's what the policy would do. And have they been cooperative? Absolutely. Um first round in particular. I mean, you know, that we, we did this the first time round with Standard Bank earlier in the year. Um and Standard Bank was very um, you know, they tabled the resolution without a problem. The board did not endorse the resolution, they recommended that shareholders vote against both resolutions at Standard Bank, although one of them did pass. The first round board has um endorsed the resolution requiring a policy. It hasn't endorsed the resolution requiring an assessment because it says it needs new, more time to compile the report, which we dispute, but even so, the board has said in the notice of AGM that it fully supports and agrees with the need for it to provide that assessment. So it's clear that the banks have really, um, I think, moved extremely fast uh, in, in, coming to become, in becoming aware of the fact that this is a serious risk that they need to address. Um, the question that remains to be seen is whether they will move fast enough in addressing the risk rather than just disclosing it.
0: Tracy Davies is the director at Just Share, a non-profit shareholder activist organization. She'll be at the annual general meetings of both SASL and First Rand this week. If you're a shareholder of any, either of those companies, I hope you will be there too. We'll be picking up with her next week to find out exactly how things have gone. Well, uh, closing our show today is the one and only Pit well, It's really good to be talking to Pit Fulion, uh from ReCM. Pit, uh, nice to have you on the program as always. Um, the the whole story, our story, goes back to when you started ReCM. How, how long ago is that?
6: Uh, we started in 2003, so it's 16 years ago, and yeah, very good to be talking to you again. It makes
0: me feel a bit old, Pete, um, but I really don't. I don't feel it. It it, it just time is, I suppose, uh, just relative, isn't it? But you, exactly. you were once with Investec Asset Management before you started Orisium, and I yes. see they've now changed their name. Uh, so I guess you go back 16 years ago. It's it's a pretty different company. Is it is it something that you anticipated? That uh, was it always a a desire for independence? The old Investec Asset Management.
6: Yeah, there, uh, even in the days when I was there, uh, going back more than 16 years, there was always this this um, uh, relationship between Investec Asset Management and Investec, which um, which was somewhat I wouldn't I wouldn't call it uh, tense, but there was always this this feeling of uh, the need for independence. And I think asset managers, generally speaking, do best when they're independent from outside influence, the shareholder control, uh, from a shareholder might have different different points of view. So uh, there was always that feeling within the business that that's where they wanted to be. And I'm very happy for Hendrik and his team that they've managed to achieve that now.
0: And the name, you had to create your own name, (laughs) ReCM. They've got an interesting name that they've chosen.
6: Yeah, 91. I, you know, I think it's one of those names which at first glance you question uh, and you wonder, you know, how did they come up with it? But I think it's a sort of name that can stick. Uh, and it's of it's a, a, a significance to them because that is when Hendrick actually started the business in 1991. So I think it has that significance.
0: Another ex boss of yours is the late Alan Gray, who passed away in the last couple of weeks. Did you. Uh Do you have a a similar view of him to to what we're seeing from many people outpouring that he was a humble man, a bit of a recluse, but a man who actually made a big contribution?
6: Oh, yeah. He made a huge contribution to the world of asset management. I I think he is probably the father of professional asset management in South Africa, Um, and I think he had a brilliant mind, and it was an honor and a privilege to work under him uh, at that time.
0: talking about asset management and the industry generally, Coronation's results were out in the past week. Big outflows there. 40 billion rand. Is that telling us anything about how you guys or or, or how your your sector of the economy is going?
6: Yeah, the asset management industry, um, as with many other industries in South Africa particularly, but I think it's not only, in this case, it's not only a South African uh, malaise. It's, It's more of a global malaise. Active asset management, the active asset management industry is under tremendous pressure from various sources, the most important one being the drift, or the, it's more than a drift, it's a strong shift towards passive management. Um, so, so that's putting tremendous pressure on the ability of asset management business to raise uh, uh, new funds or to generate inflows. Uh, and also, uh, because markets have become quite narrow, its performance, or relative performance at least, it's difficult to come by. So those are two things playing a big role in the asset management industry today. And it, 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 there's no doubt it's a, it's a much tougher industry uh, than it has been for a very, very long time.
0: So how do you counter that?
6: Well, the first thing you do is, of course, you cut your costs according to, uh, according to what you have. So you cut costs. You have to cut costs. You have to bring your costs under control. Historically, um, the industry has been quite, uh, quite generous in how it spends money both on publicity and, and on the people that work there. Um, I think that is busy changing quite rapidly um, and uh, will continue to change going forward.
0: Mm. Another company that we've often spoken about over the years, which you used to like a, a, a great deal, is Tiger Brands. Their results coming out uh, today, this morning. Your, your take on, on it, do you still like the business like The way you used to?
6: I think in there, deep in there somewhere, is still a very good business. I just think it has been managed fairly poorly over the past 10 years. Um, All sorts of different things competition uh, commission problems, uh, mysteriosis problems, uh, and how uh, it's not, you know, companies make mistakes. Uh, Any company makes a mistake, but it's how you deal with the mistakes and how you come out from it that's the important thing. And uh, my impression is, or my view is, that Tiger Brands has not done uh, themselves proud in how they've dealt with their mistakes.
0: But but how is it from a complete external perspective that the investors are happy for the same management team that should be taking responsibility for listeriosis uh, to continue in the future and talk about going back into the area of their, I suppose, second biggest disaster, which was Nigeria?
6: yeah i I think you'll have to ask the shareholders that <laughs> are you not a shareholder
0: <laughs> no. <laughs>
6: no we haven't been for a very long time um i think uh, I, I i think it's a case where um and that's one of the unintended consequences of this uh, rise of indexation is that uh, corporate oversight i think sometimes falls by the wayside in that the the owners are no longer uh, worried about what goes on in the business. They're just worried about what weighting the share has in the index. Um, and, and the corporations are very smart in gaming this, uh, this aspect of indexation. Uh, so I think oversight falls by the wayside or can fall by the wayside and sometimes does. Uh, and I think that's a problem. I think, uh, you know, Tiger Brands, the way it's currently run is, uh, is, is a poster child for that.
0: Mm. And the unbundling of first round. Again, we've both been around long enough to remember when it was pretty much when it was started. Johan Rupert's RMB getting together with um, the bucket shop, really, that, that uh, Larry Dupinard and um, Paul Harris and G.T. Ferreira had. Then developing it into a business that acquired the old first national bank. Now unbundling it. There's all kinds of speculation that's going around this. What's your reading? Um,
6: It's very interesting. I I think there must be something more behind it that meets the eye, Uh, but I haven't been able to come to grips with it. Um, I I do think that it will be key to see what Rembrandt does, whether it unbundles all its first-round shares or only a portion of it, because they haven't yet stated what they're going to do. So if they they just unbundle a portion of it, I can understand that. I think it's a very... um, tenuous position these days to be a shareholder of reference to a large bank. Um, as we saw 10 years ago through financial crisis, banks being highly leveraged institutions can get into trouble quite quickly and can sometimes require quite a lot of capital. So I think being in the position of being a shareholder of reference to a large bank is not always a great position. So maybe that's what they're thinking about. Uh, that's a, you know, that, that's only sort of uh, speculation I can I can add to the potter.
0: The official story, or maybe unofficial story, because I had a long chat with Laurie DiPano about this, is that he says that he, Paul, and GT have now taken 10 years to extricate themselves completely, to move from an owner-managed business to a professionally managed business. And given that, this is yet j- just another step in the process. And you can kind of get it from the three founders because their investments – must still be very heavily weighted towards first round. But it's the RemGro story that you've touched on, which is which is really relevant here. It's about 35% of the asset base and 45% of the earnings. Now, when you unbundle that chunk of your revenue generation or your revenue stream, you've got to have a good reason for it, surely.
6: Yeah, that's right. And, and I think that's, that's the answer a lot of people are looking for and the answer I, unfortunately, can't give to you, apart from the speculation that, do you want to be a shareholder of reference to a large bank,
0: Pete? Mm. Maybe just to close off with, because it, it ties it all together quite nicely. When you were talking earlier about investors not really having uh, that closer relationship with companies, um, and then the managers of that of those companies managing it, is there a real big difference between businesses that are, are managed by managers, if you say professional managers, on the one hand, or Owner-managed businesses are there? You've seen these on the markets over many years. Are are there? Is is one better than the other for an investor, or um, is there anything that one should be looking out for uh, on either side? I
6: I I think as with most things in markets, the answer isn't unequivocally yes or no, or this is always better than that, or this is always better than this. Uh, I think. Each individual case needs to be examined separately. Uh, but I do think what is happening in a lot of cases is that managers of business, professional managers of businesses, are usurping the role of owners, and they are managing a business for their own benefit, uh, sometimes, uh, sometimes consciously and sometimes uh, less so. Uh, but that is happening to a large extent in some instances. Not all, all instances, but in some instances, and I think that is something that the owners of a business or the shareholders, who are the owners at the end of the day, need to start uh, looking at. And I think that's starting to happen a bit, but I think we need a lot more of that going forward.
0: And what do you do from that perspective, given that your clients have got billions of rands invested in these companies? Do you do you shout your mouth off at the AGMs?
6: Um, sometimes we would uh, – go to AGMs, but I'm not sure that AGM is the platform to shut your mouth off. Uh, I think uh, we prefer to engage privately and try and influence things in the right direction. That, that is our preferred course of action. I think if one starts forming an antagonistic type uh, relationship, that generally doesn't uh, help uh, in moving things forward.
0: Peter Lyon is the founder and chief executive of ReCM. Uh, the original Value investor in South Africa And uh, somebody who I have The greatest admiration for And have had some So for many years And appropriately he brings to a close Today's edition of Rational Radio we back again Between noon and one Next Monday and every Monday Look forward to being in your company then